0: Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, Lenten Preaching Edition, the ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church, recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair.
1: To loose the bonds of injustice, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please. I am honored to be here, uh, and whenever I'm honored to be in a pulpit, which is blessedly not often for you, um, I'm reminded of a moment, because when you're up here, you begin to think you're a little closer to the big guy, right? Right. Um, and my mind goes back to a moment, it's been about 12 years ago now, I was on the Washington Mall at the National Book Festival, and I was on my way at that point to give my talk about Andrew Jackson, and a woman ran up to me, which doesn't happen enough. <laughs> and Sorry, Father. Uh, and she said, oh my God, it's you. And I said, well, yes, you know, existentially speaking, that's hard to argue with. And, um, <laughs> She said, your books have meant so much to me. Will you wait right here? I'm going to go buy your new book and have you sign it. And I said, yes, ma'am. And I stood there thinking this is the way the world is supposed to be, right? Women aren't up to you. They buy your book. It was a twofer. Hand to the Lord. She brought back John Grisham's latest (laughs) novel. So whenever I think I've got it made, I remind myself that somewhere in America there's a woman with a forged copy of the Runaway Jury, right? <laughs> uh, We—that's a true story. Uh, we are gathered at a city that is no stranger to the power and to the pain of the past. It was here on a stormy April night that Martin Luther King Jr. told us that he had seen the promised land. Only hours later, to fall to an assassin's bullet. Just days before, Dr. King had preached what would become his final Sunday sermon, not at Ebenezer in Atlanta, but in Washington at the National Cathedral, the seat of our church. In that sermon, Dr. King spoke of judgment. He said this, one day we will have to stand before the God of history. Yes, we built gargantuan bridges to span the seas. We built gigantic buildings. We made our submarines to penetrate oceanic depths. We brought into being many other things with our scientific and technological power. Yet it seems that I can hear the god of history saying, that was not enough. But I was hungry, and ye fed me not. I was naked, and ye clothed me not. If ye do it unto the least of these, my brethren, you do it unto me. That's the question facing America today. So preached Dr. King in 1968. That question faces us still and always shall. And so it is, as William Faulkner taught us, that the past is never dead. It isn't even past. Now, I am a historian of that past, of the American past, and so I tend to think historically. But so do you, whether you really recognize it or not. For the Christian tradition is rooted in acts of remembrance. From the first Passover to the Last Supper, including the imposition of ashes on this day, our faith often finds expression in tangible acts of commemoration and in an active recognition of the sanctity and the dignity of every individual life. And the principles of individual sanctity and dignity animate our faith when our faith is at its best. They also animate our nation when our nation is at its best. The common denominator in all of this is we the people. For both our faith and our nation thrive when each of us manages, however briefly, to live in closer harmony with the ideals of light and love. And let's be very candid. That harmony is incredibly elusive. It is contingent. It comes and it goes, and it really goes more often than it comes. But we must seek it, for only in the search is progress possible. Ash Wednesday is a useful occasion to consider past, present, and future, for it's a day on which we are summoned to assess where we've been look around at where we are, and decide how to turn, to turn from sin and from the selfish and from the darkness. And the words of the prophet Isaiah, which we heard a moment ago, show us a way to make that turn. Is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of injustice, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke. The good news about this particular understanding of repentance, of fasting, of Lenten discipline, is that it transcends our usual sense of the terms. Now, if you're at all like me, repentance is often thought of as a private matter. It's the commerce in our heart and in our mind as we consider and confess our failings silently, usually in a place like this nave. And in considering and in confessing, we engage in the hope that the Lord will mysteriously forgive us, cleanse us, and send us on our way. Being sent on our way is a contingent matter. As Tom Sawyer remarked about an evangelist who came to town, the evangelist was so good that even Huck Finn was saved until Tuesday. (laughs) But perhaps that happens. Perhaps we can get to Wednesday and maybe Thursday. I don't know. The mystery of the intersection between the divine and the temporal is profound and will only be revealed on the last day. So until that last day, which doesn't seem to be today, the best we can do is weigh the evidence of Scripture in the scales of reason and of tradition. And here, for what it's worth, is what I come out of that process of weighing believing. That to satisfy ourselves with a word of contrition and to hope for the best is tempting, we should do it, but it may ultimately be inadequate. Inadequate to the injunctions of scripture, inadequate to the pull of conscience, inadequate to the spirit of the faith we confess. I want to be clear. Redemption, thankfully, is a matter of grace, not of works. The peace of the Lord, as we are told repeatedly, passeth all understanding. His capacity for forgiveness passeth all understanding. Yet we are called to do what works we can, works that loose the bonds of injustice, let the oppressed go free, and break every yoke. In these words, we are unambiguously, explicitly, and straightforwardly told that in offering food to the hungry and comfort to the afflicted and shelter to the lost, we are doing the work of God in a world of men by doing unto others as we would have them do unto us. And that, that is the treasure of which Jesus spoke in the gospel. And that treasure of justice in a world of injustice is where our hearts must be. And not just our hearts, but our hands and our voices. That work is true repentance. It's active repentance. A turn from the narrow and the sinful to the whole and the good. In doing right by others, the prophet says that order will come. And that our ancient ruin shall be rebuilt and we shall raise up the foundations of many generations and we shall be called the repairer of the breach. Now, if this were a simple matter, if it were simple to conduct ourselves in a way that we were selfless and generous, then we wouldn't have to be instructed in these things again and again and again. And we would not have to gather from age to age to hear the old story a new. And yet here we are on a winter's noon contemplating the words of an ancient prophet and the injunctions of a messiah as we make our way through what the Victorian novelist George Eliot called the dim lights and tangled circumstance of the world, a fallen, frail and fallible world. Fortunately, history History teaches us that we can find a path through that twilight. From Seneca Falls to Selma to Stonewall, from Lexington and Concord to Gettysburg to Omaha Beach, we have moved the world away from tyranny and toward liberty. And we are our best selves when we build not walls but bridges, when we act not out of greed but generosity, and when we fail to clench our fists reflexively, but instead extend a hand. This is not sentimental. This is a clinical view of the American past. We grow stronger the more generous we are. And the motive force of that growth, of that progress, is an insistence on loosening the bonds of injustice, letting the oppressed go free, and loosening every yoke. Empathy is the oxygen of democracy. Love is the oxygen of our faith. And empathy and love can rise, and I would argue needs to rise, for it is so universal, from our active repentance, our recognition of the wrong, our contemplation of the right, and a determination, as Dr. King said in that sermon, to bend the arc of a moral universe toward justice. But the arc of a moral universe does not tend that way by itself. For every action, there is a reaction. For every step forward, there is someone pulling back. That's the nature of life since the garden. Our tradition is about arming ourselves to bend that arc, to insist that it swerve so that it might bend. That's the lesson of our history, both sacred and secular, a history in which we, the people, as the people of God and as a polity within a constitutional republic, move from limitation to possibility, from exclusion to inclusion, from constriction to opportunity. A history in which we see each other not as enemies or even as rivals, but as neighbors. Now, when I talk about neighbors, I think that puts many of us in mind of Mr. Rogers, (laughs) right? And I want to tell you a quick story about a very small category called Great Tweets. It's like French military victories in the 20th century, right? We can run through it pretty fast. About six months ago, someone tweeted out that if Doris Kearns Goodwin and Mr. Rogers had had a one-night stand, I would have resulted. I thought it was great. Doris was a little unhappy. She called. She said, couldn't Mr. Rogers and I have fallen in love and we were and you were the fruit of our wonderful union? I said, no, 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 sweetheart. He picked you up in the C-SPAN bar. But anyway, um, I can now safely say this will be my first and last sermon at Calvary Church. Um, We can't see each other as enemies. We just can't. It has to be neighbors. Otherwise, democracy doesn't work. Otherwise, our faith cracks up. The foundation of the faith gives way. And it is a choice we can make. It's a choice we are enjoined to make. It is a turn that today we commemorate. We are reminded of the brevity of life, the temporality of all things. But there is an eternal thing, and in turning, in seeing each other as neighbors as opposed to enemies, we get a glimpse, just a glimpse, of that greater glory. Our history is shaped not ideally by the pull of appetite and ambition, but by the importunings of the prophets and the angels. And that history is shaped by a keeping of a feast in which we do unto others as we would have done unto us. And in that history, through the mercy of God, lies our hope.
0: The Calvary Podcast theme music was composed by Spence Bailey. Special thanks to Robin Banks, Director of Communications at Calvary, and Heidi Rupke, Lenten Preaching Series Coordinator. And thanks to you for listening.